Well, I was sitting down to plan out my preaching calendar for 2019. I'm praying a thought, praying a thought, praying a thought. And originally the plan was to start the Gospel of Mark today. That was what the plan was going to be, but that just did not take off. And usually when that does not take off, I take that to be that is my actual boss telling me that's not what you're going to do. And so here we are in my absolute favorite book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. I am excited to start preaching through this book. Uh, And it's not really a surprise, I guess, that we're in it, since you can look in your bulletin and you can see it. But we are going to be going through the entirety of the book of Revelation. It might not be at one spell because it divides evenly into chunks. It'll be easy to take a break if we need to, but... I want us to go all the way through it. Uh, And while you're flipping to Revelation chapter 1, you'll notice in your bulletin that I have changed my title since the printing of this bulletin, but I have not changed the text because the character of the sermon is going to be somewhat of an introduction to what we're going to be seeing in the book of Revelation. How many of you are familiar with the name Edgar C. Huizenant? Have you ever heard this name? You will today. Um, Edgar C. Wiesenant is probably most famous for printing the book 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Rapture Will Be in 1988. Your pastor was born in 1989, so obviously this did not occur. Now, I'm going to quote the next little chunk from Wikipedia because they did a good job formatting it, but I had already heard this before reading it here. I just wanted to look it up to get the details for you. Eventually, 300,000 copies of 88 Reasons were mailed free of charge to ministers across America, and 4.5 million copies were sold in bookstores and elsewhere. Wiesenant was quoted as saying, Only if the Bible is in error am I wrong, and I say that to every preacher in town. If there were a king in this country and I could gamble with my life, I would stake my life on the rapture occurring during Rosh Hashanah, that is the Jewish New Year, in 1988. Huizanant's predictions were taken seriously in some parts of the evangelical Christian community, and as the date approached, this is is lovely, regular programming on the Christian Trinity Broadcast Network, some of you might know it as TBN, was interrupted to provide special instructions on preparing for the rapture. So obviously the rapture did not occur in 1988, did it? Nor did it occur in 1989. Nor did it occur in 1993. Nor did it occur in 1994. Nor did it occur in 1997. He published books and pamphlets every single one of those years explaining why that was the year it was going to happen. He continued to publish books and make predictions until no one cared. And now today, in 2019, almost said 2018, you don't even know who the name Edgar C. Wiesenant is. He was a very famous guy for a long time because he did what I don't want us to do with the book of Revelation because that's not the point. Revelation is not about figuring out what is going to happen when. That's not the point of the book. 
Revelation is not about at the end of it. If you've studied it well, you can draw a big chart out and you can map the entire end times portion of Scripture and understand it. That's not what it's about. A lot of what Revelation is made out to be about is not its point. There's a lot of symbolism in it, but that doesn't mean the whole book is symbolic. And just because something is symbolic doesn't mean it's not true. And just because there's some symbolism in it doesn't mean that there's not also some literalism in it. But just because some of it's literal doesn't mean all of it is. Not everything in Revelation discusses the future. Not everything in Revelation discusses the past. There is no simplistic way to study this book, but that doesn't mean that studying it isn't worth it. That Revelation doesn't get preached that often because it's hard. If you've ever read Revelation, you've probably had some head-scratching moments where you look at it and say, what on earth did I just read? The problem might have been that you wasn't reading anything about something on earth. Revelation is an interesting book in that it contains, we will see today, a special blessing for those who read it, hear it, and keep it. So I want us to take an opportunity today to get ourselves in the right frame of mind and even understand in these first three verses what God intends this book to do in your life. So Josh, you're going to preach a sermon on an introduction. I absolutely am because there's an introduction in the Bible and every single word's inspired. So there's a sermon in there, y'all. So we're going to look at it. So if you will stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word, we're going to read Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> the word of God says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Father, we thank you uh, for this word. We thank you for this book. And Lord, we do call on you. Lord, we ask for your blessing. As we read it, we hear it. And I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will enable us to keep it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I want us to see three of God's intentions this morning for the book of Revelation because God does not ever hit fire. You know what I mean when I say hit fire? You ever see, you ever watch the old westerns where people where they come out and you have no idea how they're hitting anybody when they get there, they're staring each other down because they pull the gun and they don't even look down it. They just pull it and go just like that and they hope to hit somebody. God doesn't do that. He doesn't hit fire. God's got intentions for this word. He says, my word doesn't ever return to me void, but accomplishes everything for which I intended. So God has an intent for scripture and the book of Revelation is no different. God has intentions for what he intends this book to accomplish, and we're going to talk about three of them today. And I think this is the reason that we have this introduction. A lot of scholars believe that John probably, even though this is at the beginning of the book of Revelation, probably came back at the end and added it last. So this is kind of like, hey, having seen and experienced everything that I told you, 
or that I'm going to tell you, I want you to know at the very outset, this is what we're doing. So first, I want us to see that God intends his people to know what's coming. Or you might even say God intends his people to know what's going on. And in other words, God intends his people to not be uninformed. Look at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the word revelation. How many of y'all have ever seen a bad History Channel special on the book of Revelation? You ever watch the History Channel? Oh my goodness, there are so many bad History Channel specials on this book. And if I had a dollar for every time I heard a quote-unquote Bible scholar refer to the book of Revelations, I would be rich. There is no book of Revelations. There is a book of Revelation. And that's not a small point. This is the book of Revelation because of the first word of the book. In Greek, it is the word apocalypsis. Now, you know that word. It's where we get the word apocalypse. And this is why, because it's named apocalypse, that anytime somebody talks about Revelation, they like to draw it in bright red and black, and there are explosions, and there's fire, and it's the end of the world. That's not what apocalypse means in Greek. It doesn't mean the end of the world. What apocalypse means is revealing or unveiling. It is God opening up something that is yet unseen. So this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's break that down. When John says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, he can mean that that's one of two things. Either it's a revealing of Jesus Christ in a way that we haven't seen him yet. Or he can mean it is a revelation that belongs to Jesus Christ that he is giving us. Now, while this book, we are going to see Jesus in his full glory. We are going to see him in his full power. That the first time Jesus came to us, we just celebrated a couple of weeks ago at Christmas. He came in humility. He laid in the manger. He was the humble Messiah. The second time Jesus comes, nobody's going to mistake him for who he is. Okay? So yes, we're going to see Jesus in his glory, but the correct answer is actually the second one. That this revelation belongs to Jesus Christ. And it is something he has given to us. And you can see that in the very next phrase. The revelation of Jesus Christ or the revelation belonging to Jesus Christ, which God, i.e. his father, gave him to show his servants. <clears throat> that this is something that the father has given to the son, Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and man. This revelation is something that God the Father has given the Son to come and share with His people. That it is something that God Himself, listen, that should blow your mind when you get it, that this book in your hand right now, the fact that you possess it, the fact that I'm standing up here reading it to you and teaching it to you, is proof positive that God the Father intends you to receive this message. This is directly to you. It is to show his servants. The book of Revelation is uniquely beneficial for Christians. 
This is why all the bad History Channel specials are bad. They're not approaching it from the position that God intended it to be approached from. If you're going to read the book of Revelation and think that it's basically going to be an encyclopedia for what the stock market is going to do, it's not going to happen that way. God intends this for Christians to know what's coming, to know what to expect. <clears throat> and then we see that this is about, excuse me, about things which must shortly take place. Now this word shortly is the Greek word tachos. You've heard this word too. Have you ever been to the cardiologist and heard the word tachycardia? Or you've ever watched a medical show and you've ever heard the word tachycardia? Um, I saw some people nodding when I said that. If you ever hear your cardiologist tell you you have tachycardia, he's telling you you need to slow down because your heart's beating too fast. It's rapid. It's speedy. Uh, so when John says these things must shortly take place, we've got to figure out what he means there too. It'd be easy to go back, and this is not on your, your handout, but you could go back and you could say 2 Peter 3, 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. We could say, oh, well, see, it's short to God. That doesn't necessarily mean it's short to us. Well, that's true. But from our perspective, this book was written sometime between 90 and 95 A.D., so... From our perspective, that's, that's not a short time. So we need to hold back and say, does John actually mean that this is going to happen like that? Now, fair point. He might not have meant that to the people that were there when he wrote this book. Fair warning, 2,000 years have passed since then. So short then and short now might be different short. You know, so there's, there's more time that has passed since John said a short time. Um, so there's that possibility. Tachos can also mean uh, not just short amount of time. It can mean speedily. So once the events of this book begin to unfold, those in the future, John might be saying there's no brakes in this car. <clears throat> that once this sucker starts rolling, you're not stopping it. You're not slowing it down. That... The, the events contained in Revelation have no breaks. And it could also mean certainly. In an English idiom, you've probably told somebody to let them know that you are certainly going to do something. You've probably said something of, I'll be along after you shortly. Right? You ever said something like that? That that doesn't necessarily mean I'm coming like right now. But you say that to let them know, I'm certainly going to do this. This word's used throughout the New Testament the same way. In fact, we'll see it tonight. If you come back tonight, this exact same Greek word is in the passage we're covering tonight. So we've got in this information, in this first verse, this first half of it, <clears throat> just looking at the language, we haven't even applied anything yet, that this book, is a revelation of something that has up to this point been veiled. That God the Father gave to His Son to share with His people. Intending them to know what is coming. Because once it begins, it will happen with rapidity. And it will happen with 
certainty. That should let you know something about your God. That God does not intend for his people to be in the dark. When you go back and you look at the ministry of Jesus, and you think about on Sunday night we've been telling parables, right? Jesus has been preaching parables. Who did the parables frustrate? Did they frustrate the Pharisees or did they frustrate his disciples? They frustrated the Pharisees. In fact, over and over again, there were folks saying, you're speaking in riddles. Why don't you just be clear? Well, he was very clear with his disciples, wasn't he? In fact, there were some parables that he even sat down after he told the parable publicly. Think of the parable of the sower. That he goes out in public and he tells the parable. But who gets the private explanation? His disciples do. That the Bible explains the Bible in most cases. That while the Bible may be deep, its general message is fairly simple. And God's children, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, are given a tool to understand it that the general population that does not know Christ does not have. Now that doesn't mean that no one else can have it. All you have to do is come to Christ. He's named the Holy Spirit. That when you look at this text, God says, I'm going to give you some advanced information so that you know what to look forward to. I don't want you to be blindsided. I don't want you to think I don't have a plan. I don't want you to think I'm just flying by the seat of my holy pants with no idea what's coming next. Have you ever had an experience in your life, maybe I'm the only one, where you get up at the beginning of the day and you have no idea where you're going to be at the end or what's happened or what's going to happen in between? And you just roll with the punches and you go, thank God, I know, thank God you know what's coming because I sure don't. The folks that were living at the time that John wrote this book were living most likely under the Roman emperor Domitian. Domitian, D-O-M-I-T-I-A-N, is famous amongst Roman emperors for being one of the most violent emperors against Christians that there ever was in the history of the Roman Empire. It was not a good time to be a Christian. Getting thrown to the lions, getting starved, getting blamed for everything bad that happens in the empire. It was not easy to be a Christian. And it would have been very easy for them to say, God, do you even know? Do you even know what's going on? God, do you even know what we're dealing with? That you sent your son down here and we know that you did it because you raised him from the dead. So we don't doubt that Christ was your son. We don't doubt that he was the Messiah. We don't doubt that he is who he says he is. But we're just confused as to why we're having to endure what we're enduring right now. And it almost seems like you got the plan set up to the point that Jesus came back to you. But we're kind of here wondering where you are and what you're doing and why we're dealing with this right now. And hello? 
Can you help us out here? And this is like God saying, Child, I know. I understand. Let me tell you what's going on. Let me tell you what my plans are so that you know I'm not throwing you to the wolves. I haven't abandoned you. I have a plan, and it will tachos occur. It will quickly, rapidly, certainly occur. And you don't need to doubt that. Isn't that a good God that recognizes that we need a little bit of encouragement and reassuring every so often? That we don't have a God that says, well, just bless me. Why don't you just buck up and deal with it? He could. When you're a parent and you look at your kids and you go, why? Because I said so. That's not an answer. Well, you can give that answer because you're the parent. God doesn't do that. God didn't have to give this. And yet he did. Look at the way God deals with his people. Genesis 18, 17 through 19. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he's spoken to him. God speaks to us not just so that we will know him but to let us know that he has known us. And so that by Him speaking to us, it helps us to obey Him. It helps us to know Him. It helps us to trust Him more and depend on Him more and to strengthen our faith that He's got a plan and He will surely bring to fruition everything that He's promised. God didn't have to tell Abraham what He's about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah, but did. Why? Because God said, I'm going to tell him because I know him. And I want him to know me. And then finally, John 15, verses 14 and 15. This is Jesus himself. says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I've made known to you. Well now, wait a minute. Didn't Revelation just say he sent it? God, that God gave it to him to show his servants? Yes, but just because you're Jesus' servant doesn't mean he doesn't also consider you his friend. So, oh my goodness, that almost seems blasphemous. I'm so much lower than Jesus and you're telling me to consider him my friend? Absolutely. Yes, consider Jesus your friend. Why? Because he wants you to. I've said this before and I'll say it again as long as God blesses me to have a pulpit. God doesn't just love you. He also likes you. He likes you. He doesn't just love the future version of you and all of your perfection once He's ironed all the kinks out. He loves you and likes you right now. Today. That doesn't mean that you're perfect and you need to walk around patting yourself on the back. I mean, none of us do. But... Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, you're my friends. 
And because you are my friends, I don't want you to stay in the dark. I want to take of what my Father has given me and I want to share it with you so that I can share with you what I'm doing so that you can work with me, so that you can be with me, so that you can walk with me, so that you can trust me, so that you can be encouraged by me. That God wants you to know Him and to know what He's up to. So there's one purpose for having this book. That yes, there's a lot of knowledge in this book that really will color the way you look at the world. So first, God intends his people to know what's coming. In other words, God just intends his people to know. And the second, <coughs> God intends his people to believe his word. I'm going to pause right here because that seems almost like a no-brainer, right? Believe your Bible. It seems like a no-brainer. For a Christian, it should be. But Revelation is a unique challenge for some folks because Revelation, for lack of a better term, is a whole new level of fantastical literature. If you've ever read it, you understand what I mean, that you get in Exodus, yeah, you get the pillar of fire and you get the pillar of smoke and you get the parting of oceans, but by the time you get to Revelation... You got the sun going out. You got beasts out of bottomless pits covered in smoke. And you got the mark of the beast. And you've got Babylon the great. And you've got signs and dragons and stars and the heavens and angelic warfare and the great white throne and the sea made of glass and the elders that got more eyes than seemingly they have arms and legs. And you, by the time you're done with it, you go, huh? I don't even know what I just read. It's nothing like anything else you're going to read. But hear me out. Just because it's hard and just because it's different doesn't mean that it is not part of the inspired word of God. And even if it's hard, y'all, I believe it. And God intends you to as well. God knew it was going to be hard. How do I know that? Look at the second half of verse 1. He sent it. And signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. He sent and signified it. Prophecy in the Bible is not always a foretelling of the future. That we mischaracterize prophecy like that a lot. That we tend to think if someone's a prophet, they're going to tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. That sometimes is the case. In Scripture, but a lot of the times, in fact, all of the times, even including those prophets in Scripture who told things that were to come, which, of course, John is one of right now, the primary function of a prophet was to look at the people after hearing from God and say, thus says the Lord. That's what a prophet did. It might have been about something you did yesterday and the prophet's telling you his, God's opinion on that. It might be about something you should be doing today and the prophet is conveying God's thoughts on that. And it might be about something that's going to happen tomorrow and God has told the prophet that. Prophecy in Scripture works that way. A prophet, by definition, is someone who speaks God's word and has given him, whether they be regarding the future or regarding the present, um, a a word about what he's doing. 
And biblical prophecy throughout the Bible is accompanied by signs so that the truthfulness of the message can be confirmed. This is from the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. The most numerous and significant uses of sign appear in relation to the Old Testament prophetic ministry. Beginning with Moses, signs are used to confirm that God has spoken to the prophet. So Moses asks God, what do I do if these people don't believe me? What do I do if they don't want to listen when I say that God has sent me? And so God says, take up the staff in your hand, Moses, Charlton Heston. Now, throw it on the ground. And what happens? It becomes a snake. And at this point, if I'm Moses, I'm also falling to the ground. Because I'm terrified. Because my stick just turned into a snake. And then God says, okay, now walk over to that snake. And I'd have been like, I trust you, God. I'll just go get another stick. He says, no, walk over there and now grab it by the tail. Okay, he picks it up. It becomes a stick again. Now, what was the point of God doing that? Was it just to show Moses he could turn the stick into a snake and vice versa? No, it wasn't to show Moses anything. It was a sign for the people that Moses was going to because those people know that Moses can't turn a stick into a snake either. So if Moses says, I'm speaking as a representative for God, and they say, prove it, Moses can go, okay, blam, and throw his stick down, and now you've got a snake. And there were other signs. <clears throat> uh, Thus, when Moses received the message of deliverance that he is to bear the children of Israel in Egypt and the Pharaoh, he is given two signs. His staff is changed into a serpent, and his hand is afflicted with leprosy. That's in Exodus chapter 4. There to show that Moses has not merely been dreaming, and that his message is the word of God and not his own invention. The prophet receives the message from the Lord, the message is proclaimed, and the message is then confirmed by a sign that may or may not be related to the message. <clears throat> so, what did the staff and the snake have to do with the children of Israel leaving Egypt? Nothing. It's just there to prove that God is actually behind this man. And that what he's saying is true. You know, Jesus also had some stuff to say about signs in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. In other words, they're saying, hey, you're saying a lot of things. But we want from you what Moses gave us. We want you to show us that you actually speak for God. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What's funny is that at this point, Pharisees had actually been given a ton of signs. Jesus had been healing people and casting out demons since the very beginning of his ministry. But they ignored it. They're just asking for more. They're approaching this from a position of unbelief already and are seeking to discredit him without paying attention to what he's already given them. But Jesus quite sensibly, points to the one sign that verifies his entire ministry. What? His crucifixion and resurrection, the sign of Jonah. If you remember the story of Jonah, what happened with Jonah? That Jonah was chunked off of a boat because he disobeyed God. He went south one too many times. And they chucked him off the boat. 
And a great fish swallowed him. And he was in the belly of the great fish for three days, three nights. And then, bleh, out onto the shores of Nineveh he was. Can you think of anybody else in Scripture who was in the belly of something for three days and then came out alive? Yeah, Jesus. He was in the belly of the earth for three days, right? After his crucifixion. So Jesus says, if you want a sign, I'll give you a sign. But you're not going to get it right now. You're going to get it when I come walking out of that grave three days after you kill me. And then you'll look back at this and you'll go, huh, maybe we should have paid attention to him. That was the confirming sign that Jesus gave then. And that is the confirming sign for why you should believe right now. Why is it that John can trust that the revelation he's getting is true? Because it's coming from Jesus. This is why this book is uniquely beneficial for Christians. For someone who doesn't believe Jesus rose from the dead, the confirming sign that tells you this book is trustworthy, you don't believe it. So why would you listen to anything? But for those who have been convicted of their sin by the Holy Spirit and said, I know Jesus is alive. I know because His Holy Spirit has convicted me of my sin. It has pointed me toward the cross and said, there is your salvation. It has pointed me toward the empty tomb and said, I know that Christ is alive, that He's not in there. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. And I know He holds the future. And I blanked on the last line. <laughs> Life is worth the living just because He lives. There you go. For people who know Jesus is alive, this book is automatically trustworthy because it's the resurrected one telling you that, that this is what's coming. John is given the signs of the appearance of Christ himself, which we are about to see. I mean, if you want to read ahead, that's in verse 9. That John sees the resurrected Christ. He sees his messenger angel at multiple times throughout his book. And at multiple times throughout this book, he hears the voice of God the, excuse me, God the Father himself. Those are pretty convincing signs for someone who already knows Jesus Christ is alive. Y'all, Christianity is not blind faith. No matter what anyone may tell you, God has given us ample reason to believe what he has said. John had more than enough reason to believe it came from Christ, the one he knew to be raised from the dead. The confirming sign for John is the same thing that should be the confirming sign for you, that Christ is alive. If you doubt the resurrection, you will not just doubt revelation. You will doubt the rest of the New Testament as well. But if you believe the resurrection, you have no reason not to believe the book of Revelation. Because it is a revelation that comes directly from the risen Christ. Listen to me. Do not allow some of the contents of this book to be brushed aside as fantastical because they're hard for you to wrap your mind around. God understands that. It was hard for John to wrap his mind around too. That's why you hear things like, I saw something that was like... We're going to see that in a lot of John's visions where he says, I saw something that was like this. 
He's not saying he saw that. He's saying, I don't know how to describe it any other way than telling you it looked like this. It was hard even for him. But this is all going to come back to whether or not you believe Jesus Christ is alive. If you believe Christ is alive, then not only are you going to be blessed by salvation, you're going to be blessed by this book. But if you don't believe Jesus Christ is alive, let me hit the pause button right now and tell you, you being blessed by the book of Revelation is the least of your concerns. You need to be saved. That this all hinges. This is going to all be a waste of time for you if you don't learn to know the risen Christ. Have you ever trusted Jesus? Have you ever given your life to Him? Have you ever been to the cross? Have you ever said, I am a sinner? Have you ever avoided the scary stuff in Revelation because you go, oh my gosh, that's going to be terrifying. It doesn't have to be. Christ is alive and He loves you. He wants to warn you. He wants to tell you what's coming. He wants to be there for you. Go to Christ. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. John says, the same John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life that was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That is John going ad nauseum telling you, We know that Jesus is the Christ. We saw it. We felt it. We heard it. We ate with Him. We sat with Him. We walked with Him. We served with Him. We worked with Him. We handled it with our hands. What does that mean? Look at John 20, verses 27 through 29. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That Christ is literally, physically alive. And that resurrection is what means, regardless of how difficult something in this book may be to comprehend, Christians, if you believe in Jesus, we ain't got a choice but to believe in this. So second... God wants people to believe His Word. And He's given us ample reason to. <clears throat> then finally, <clears throat> briefly, God intends His people to be blessed when they listen to Him. Now, I don't know how to encourage you more than to lean into the study of Revelation in the weeks to come than this. Verse 3 says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. This is a beatitude. You know what Beatitudes are? If you go to the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, blessed is the, blessed is the one who, blessed is, it's a blessing. This is a Beatitude. It says, blessed is he who reads. The force behind this Greek word is not just for reading it yourself, it's for reading it aloud. The idea is that this book of prophecy should be shared amongst God's people. It shouldn't be, oh, well, this is advanced studies that we only talk about at certain times and only certain people. No, we should discuss this. This should be public knowledge. This is not secrecy here. This is interesting, because how often is Revelation preached? 
Not very often, is it? It is so odd to me that the one book of the Bible that specifically has a special blessing pronounced on the reading, the hearing, and the keeping of it is the one that we talk about the least. Other than maybe the minor prophets. We don't ever do anything with them, which is sad. I love them too. The one who reads is not the only one who's blessed, but also for those who hear. There's a special blessing pronounced on those who hear as well as the ones reading it. But as usual with Scripture, that's not where God intends it to end. The very next phrase says, And keep those things which are written in it. Revelation is often misconstrued as a book purely of knowledge of things to come. That's not the case. There's plenty of material in the book of Revelation that's already occurred. And plenty in the book of Revelation that should color the way we live in our lives right now. The Father, Son, and Spirit did not intend us to receive the prophecy and not change the way we live in the light of it. So if you are expecting our trip through Revelation to be a series of predictions on what the end times are going to be like and to be light on current day application, now would be the time to reevaluate where you expect this sermon series to go. We're going to talk a lot in the coming weeks about what this book has to say about life in 2019. He says, for the time is near. There is literally no reason that the series of events in Revelation cannot begin today, which means there is no guarantee that you have time to start being serious tomorrow. James chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That God does not intend you to read the book of Revelation and come away going, oh man, that was a neat Bible comic book. He doesn't intend you to do that. I mean, with all the explosions and creatures and things like that, you might think of it that way. It's not. God intends you to look at this book and say, what does that mean about the way I live my life? What does that mean about the way I obey? about the way I pray, about my degree of faithfulness, about my use of the time God has given me because I might not have much of it. Y'all, three people in this community passed away this week. I think there have been more since then. I know three that were close to a lot of y'all here. A funeral always serves as a reminder that there is a day for all of us, where there is not a next day. Okay? Now, for those who are believers, I mean, listen. I know some of the folks who, who, whose funerals were had this week, man, they're living their next day. And they're fine. But a next day on earth, Eventually, all of us are going to have a time where our, our opportunity to serve Jesus on earth and do his work here is done. You don't have a guarantee that your, your, this current day is not all of our last day because Christ could return before I finish this sentence that is coming out of my mouth. Or this one. Or this one. Or your sentences as you sit around the lunch table. And then finally, <clears throat> we'll close out with this in Luke 6, verses 46 through 49. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? 
Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you who he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. That I encourage you is... Miss Joyce and uh, Mr. Jim come to lead us in an invitation hymn, number 447. I encourage you, when you go home today, especially if you're just brave and you're like, you know what, I want to read my Bible. It's 2019. I made a resolution that I'm going to read the Bible more. Go home and read Revelation. Go home and do it. Do, do it several times throughout the time we're preaching through this book. I encourage you to. There is a blessing on reading and hearing it. But look for what Jesus wants us to do. I think this is a very good text for us to start 2019 with because the question is not how much do you know about God, but how much do you know Him? Not how much do you know about what God has called us to do, but how much are we obeying Him? Not whether we're familiar, but whether we're faithful. The book of Revelation calls us to be both familiar and faithful, to have knowledge and to know, to understand and to obey. So I want to encourage you as you leave here, begin your year by saying, God, I don't just want to know about you, I want to know you. I want to do and live what you've called me to do and live. And so that as we see the unfolding of God's plan for the world, we might also see the unfolding of God's plan for his church. We're going to pray and ask God to bless this time of invitation. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, let me encourage you. For the next few minutes during the song, you have an opportunity to talk to me about what it would mean to know Christ. That there are several different ways we can, we can deal with that. You can, if you want to, I'll be standing up front. You can come down this aisle. That scares you. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, there's that flap on the side of your bulletin. You can fill that out. And you can put that in the offering plate and it will get to me. Um, and we'll follow up with you. Or if you miss both of those, catch me at the back door before you leave. But if the Holy Spirit is prompting you, and if you want to know what that is, if there's something in you going, you need to talk to that, that little 12-year-old that, that little preacher up there uh, uh, about, uh, about Jesus, that's the Holy Spirit. Well, wait a minute. That just sounds like my conscience. It's not your conscience. It's the Holy Spirit. I promise. If he's calling you to move, just listen to him. Because I promise you, I'm going to keep praying that he doesn't leave you alone. It's because I love you. I'm going to pray if he's calling you to move, you move. Father, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for the blessing of your word. Lord, thank you for being a God who wants his people to know what's going on and to know that he cares about us and he does have a plan. He's not just a man's son. Lord, that you are a God who intends us to believe you and gives us all the reasons in the world to believe you. And Lord, that you are a God uh, who intends us to obey you, who intends us to keep your word. Now that we know, hey, we know what you're doing, that you have a plan, let's follow you. Father, I pray that you would strengthen and encourage this church by this word because that's what you intend Revelation to do. And Lord, I pray that you would draw those who don't know you to yourself and to your cross for salvation so that they can 
receive the blessings as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.